This is the Burning Archive podcast, where the past is not dead, the past is not even past, and whereby thinking about the past, we try to live better in the present. And the question for today is, if the past is not going to be past, if it's going to be part of our living present, and if we, by thinking about the past, truly live better in the present, how should we use history? To do that task, what are the lessons of history, not just for academic study, but for policy, for government, for statecraft, and for citizenship, and for even personal enlightenment? That is the question for today's Birding Archive. So welcome to the podcast Today, it's uh, now August 2022, how about that? Almost the anniversary of the fall of Kabul and the uh, humiliation of America in Afghanistan. And we've had a few major global issues traverse uh, the uh, airwaves of the Burning Archive podcast since that date a year ago. Um, but I thought I'd try something slightly different today. And rather than talk about a particular topic in history, I would talk about the uses of history itself in present day life, in practical life, including the uh, strange form of life that I have practiced for over 30 years, which is to be a very, very, very minor government official and wonder how is history relevant to government? How is it relevant to politics, to policy? What lessons do we learn about history? How, even if you are not a big, important decision maker, how history can be, I guess, applied as a form of practical wisdom and a form of personal enlightenment in these benighted, difficult times. Perhaps history would tell us no more benighted and no more difficult than any previous time. Now, there are so many truisms about history, like, you know, those who do not learn from history are condemned to repeat it, or... The only thing you ever learn from history is there is nothing to learn from history. Or a very common one, uh, which I think uh, originates from a poem by Seamus Haney, which Joe Biden and uh, Barack Obama frequently quote and plagiarise, is that history does not repeat, but it does sometimes rhyme. But I want to sort of be a little bit more focused and uh, specific about that and my uh, discussion about that today is prompted partly by reading a recent book and a recent Australian book by no less that is called Lessons from History Leading Historians Tackle Australia's Greatest Challenges and it's edited by Carolyn Holbrook, Lyndon McGarrity and David Lowe who uh, I think are all based, oh no, David Lowe and Carolyn Holbrook are based at Deakin University, where they are involved in a contemporary histories research group. Uh, and the book uh, contains essays, including by Hugh White, uh, who uh, featured in the show last time uh, in the discussion about Australian foreign policy, uh, but also by the distinguished historian Graham Davison, historian of Melbourne, uh, who, whose book on marvellous Mel Melbourne, uh, which described the great building boom of the 1880s, was, uh, I at one point I knew every sentence and every footnote of that book. Um, and also, uh, that's when I was doing my PhD, and also by the historian Frank Bongiorno called Learning the Right Lessons to Policy Stories, and also by uh, a chap called James Walter, who uh, write about bridging the divide between historians and policymakers. 
And I'm not going to go into a lot of detail uh, about this particular book. It features uh, about 20, uh, 22 essays on both how a knowledge of history can make for better policy. Perhaps I'll focus a little bit on those. But also lessons from history looking at very specific issues and drawing some conclusions. So, for example, Hugh White looks at the war with China. Uh, what can history teach us particularly? And now perhaps he should send a copy urgently to Nancy Pelosi and Joe Biden. There's also discussions of foreign aid and the Muslim problem in Australia, in quote, quote marks, Muslim problem and working mothers and childcare policy and a whole range of other issues. And the book is something of a plea, I guess, to make history relevant uh, to the world of politics and to the world of government. And if I just quote from the introduction to the book, uh, the, the editors say that uh, today, the world appears more volatile than it has been for many decades and our problems more intractable. Besides our descent into irreversible climate change, there is the threat of major conflict between the West and Russia and China, a little bit outdated now, and the unthinkable truth that the United States might soon no longer be a democracy. Not so unthinkable, I think. Um, our politicians and policymakers need at their disposal the best information in order to make decisions of untold consequence. This includes a sound knowledge of history. Politicians and policymakers must see the world with the past. Lessons from history provides a roadmap for this vital knowledge laying bare how history can and indeed should inform public debate. It is a book for politi politicians, policymakers, community workers, journalists, and engaged citizens, uh, whoever they are, as well as historians. Far from seeking to offer crude historical lessons or rigid templates that might be imposed upon contemporary problems, Instead, we are interested in history's capacity to enlarge and contextualise public debates. And uh, they do a fantastic job indeed of enlarging and contextualising many of the debates that they discuss in the book. And there's a lot to commend about the book. However, the book is a little bit of a... I guess within the historical world, probably a slightly partisan uh, contribution. And they sort of pin their, their colours to the mast a little bit towards the end of this introductory essay, where they say this book joins a rising tide of civic activism among exasperated historians. As, quote marks, citizen historians... We will not stand by while the stumps of democratic governance are white-anted, while wealth inequality reaches the grotesque levels of previous eras, and while vested interests block necessary action on climate change. So they do hope that this book will help improve our degraded system of political decision-making, and so help governments better understand the past and act better in the present. And I totally commend that, but I do feel the book uh, perhaps is a little bit too uh, partisan. It rather assumes uh, that historians might have chosen the right side of certain policy issues and that they can come in with some good solutions for governments. And I'm not convinced that is really the best way to uh, convince uh, governments, policymakers, politicians uh, about the genuine uses of history. I think there rather should be rather less emphasis on uh, lessons from history, especially lessons from historians, and more on 
play on on emphasizing how people other than historians can engage intelligently with the issues and the ongoing being, ongoing presence of the past uh, in their lives. And to my mind, at least, there is a quite now old book by a person called James Newstat, I think, called Thinking in Time, which provides a rather better account of how to use history in decision-making, not uh, just through reading uh, the detailed scholarly research of uh, you know, salaried historians, but how uh, people wrestling with real life issues today in a flux of uncertainty and changing events and contending uh, forces, how they can use history to guide their thinking to make better decisions, both in government but also the types of decisions uh, we all face as citizens, not just citizen historians, um, and in a way also trying to make sense of our own brief presence in the great flow of culture and history over time. It might be quite interesting to have a bit of a dialogue between uh, someone like myself who well, I guess you could call me an historian who practised in a government for 30-odd years and continues to try to use history in an intelligent way to inform uh, the things that I do in government and uh, the views of these historians. There's clearly a bit of a the lack of a genuine forum or space where there can be some of this intelligent open discussion between people about history and its relevance for public events and I think that impoverishes us rather a lot. Today on the podcast I guess I'm I'm just gonna give a bit of a flavour of some of the ideas in that book about the uses of history and then maybe comment more about my own sense of uh, how how you can use history both for decision making and policy and politics but ultimately perhaps of more significance for most of the listeners in my podcast none of whom probably um, except um, listeners in the Kremlin um, are, are making large statecraft decisions, how history can help us make meaningful decisions in our personal lives and help us, I guess, follow our individual journey of enlightenment, if I could put it in that sort of Buddhist sort of way. So let's have a look then at three of the essays from Lessons from History um, that go to the question of how a knowledge of history makes for better policy and also some lessons, practical case studies, sort of lessons from history, what that looks like when applied to a particular issue. And those three essays are by one by Frank Bongiorno, Learning the Right Lessons to Policy Stories, uh, one by James Walter, Historians Bridging the Divide with Policymakers, and James Walter, I believe, was like maybe a speechwriter or something like that, uh, maybe in the foreign policy security type world, uh, so he could speak with some experience of bridging the divide with policymakers. And then finally, I will look at last essay of the book, How to Fix Our Federation by Carolyn Holbrook as an example of this perspective applied. And uh, of course, there are many other good essays in this book, but I think that will give us a bit of a flavour. So in Frank Bongiorno's essay, Learning the Right Lessons to Policy Stories, he looks really effectively, I guess, at 
the use and abuse of history in public policy debates. And he, uh, I guess with some validity, complains that often a rather distorted uh, view of the past or a simplistic explanation of the past is used for rough political purposes to make, to advance decisions in the contested public space. And Bongiorno reflects a view that often these uses and these arguments about the past are either simplistic, stripped of context, and the complexity of of the real mixed motivations and situations of the various actors, or is distorted in various ways. And he he says that it's often actually a bit of a trap for historians to want to influence public debate because too often both politicians and policymakers and vested interests but not true historians will traffic in simplistic simplistic and decontextualized understandings of the past with little or no regard for evidentially based historical research. And he gives two examples of this uh, pattern. One of those he summarises as the changing fortunes of a rich country. And this is essentially the story told in Paul Kelly's very successful book, The End of Certainty, the story of the 1980s, where... Paul Kelly basically provides a contemporary history that tries to make sense of the Hawke-Keating years and the economic reforms that were implemented in the 1980s and not just the economic reforms but I guess the transformation that under that occurred through the 1980s in the nature of Australian politics where the Labor Party became um, much less a union-driven Labor Party and more of a, uh, I guess, a party of economic reform in various ways. And um, I, I, this has certainly been a very powerful story in policymakers' vision of the Australian past. I personally can recall uh, the head of the Premier's department at uh, one point forming an argument to go to um, the COAG meeting, um, the Council of Australian Governments meeting for the Victorian Premier, which essentially was trying to provide a bit of a narrative of uh, Australian political history or the, the economic challenges facing Australia, to which the Victorian Premier's proposal could be seen as a positive contribution. And he essentially borrowed the historical argument, or the the story, perhaps one should say, that is presented in Paul Kelly's End of Certainty about the, the end of the Australian settlement in comprising white Australia policy, tariff protection, wage arbitration, state paternalism and imperial benevolence, leading to Australia's decline and the reversal of that and the invention of a new economic agenda being the basis for Australian national re- renewal in the 1980s and so on. So, Bongiorno is certainly right that this is a powerful, let's call it a myth, shall we? Or let's perhaps more charitably call it a a, a common uh, story in the stock of stories people tell about Australian history. But there are various ways in which Bongiorno points out that this story is not really quite right. And... Uh, he notes that professional economic historians have not enthusiastically endorsed this interpretation of Australian history. And it was all a lot more complicated than that. There was a whole story of economic institutions, and in particular, Bongiorno points out to the much more uh, soundly based work of 
Ian McLean on the economic history of Australia, which presents a, a much more complicated story and a more compelling story than Paul Curley's effectively journalistic account. And before we go on to the second story uh, he uses, um, I think that's probably a fair point, but I think it's also a misunderstanding to think that Ian McLean's work uh, was uh, has not also informed policymakers because it certainly has and I can speak from direct personal experience there so perhaps Frank Bongiorno's uh, account of the uses of the past needs a little bit more evidentially based historical research. The second story he has is about the long shadow of the Munich narrative, and this is really about the failure of appeasement in foreign policy in the 1930s, and which you could say uh, is is a international uh, myth of history and a very powerful one, and one that, for example, has recently been sort of relayed in the the film uh, about Munich 1930. I won't go into as much detail because I don't have as much personal experience going uh, dealing with that story, but we, you, everyone can see, or everyone would be aware of the story, you know, comparisons with Hitler, comparisons with um, appeasement of the 1930s. Uh, been a common trope in public debate even today as people confront Russia or China or uh, whichever is the current enemy of the day. And Frank Bongiorno concludes his essay by saying the role of the historian in promoting lessons from history and participating in public debate is really, I guess, to be the keeper of the true stories of the past and uh, prevent as much as possible the contamination by of politicians and policymakers of these historical fables which he has referred to. And he writes that our only hope in the struggle, struggle to prevent the misuse of the past in these ways might be to work to increase historical literacy from the ground up, from cradle to grave, certainly from school through workplace to retirement uh, village. And the most critical capacity that we need to develop is the ability of the decision makers and those in the media, think tanks and bureaucracy who most influence them to draw nuanced historical lessons informed by a sense of context. And I think that is a fair and valid point. So the second essay I'm going to look at is uh, James Walters, Historians Bridging the Divide with Policymakers. And this is uh, an interesting essay, and it's one that really, I guess, draws out the point that the practical conditions of work and the, uh, I guess, professional cultures of what James Walters describes as policy professionals public servants, advisors and consultants, three quite different uh, categories of uh, profession, but let's leave that to aside. They have different needs for uh, interpretation and understanding of the past. That the, the needs of policy professionals are driven by political imperatives, short timelines and election campaign promises and that sort of thing. Historians, on the other hand, have a, you know, a longer-term perspective of asking different questions, he says, of who did what, when and why. The historian, he says, is driven by curiosity. The work of a politician or policy advisor is driven by need. And I suspect that, uh, and then he says, the logic of historical inquiry is at odds with the logic of politics and policy. And I think to some degree he's uh, making a fair point there that yes, those professional experiences are different and with some different characteristics. But I also think he rather overdraws the case and that 
um, many historian, many policymakers, and I can speak of myself in that regard, certainly do pursue some matters of interest and in their lives are not without asking questions of who did what or when and why. In fact, there are very, very few policy issues in my experience that can be very much advanced without some deep thinking, even within the pressures of timelines and uh, media-driven things that do not allow for some a deeper inquiry into the nature of things, including how they have developed over time. So James Walter's essay, I think, is good, but on the whole, it ends up being a bit of a, a an argument for how historians can extend their influence in public policy debates or in politics by clever networking and understanding the needs of those benighted, non-truth-seeking people in politics and policymakers. And he writes, Historians concerned to bridge the divide between their domain and the policy world can find helpful frameworks for doing so drawn from political and policy studies. These... Disciplines have developed useful course concepts from which we can learn network relationships, webs of meaning, punctuated equilibrium, policy windows and advocacy coalitions, for example. His article really ends up boiling down to a bit of a, uh, this is how to, how to network and influence people if you're a historian. Okay, the third essay I'm going to sort of comment on briefly is the book. Uh, it's the essay by Carolyn Holbrook, who is one of the editors of the book and I think is a historian at, in the Contemporary Histories Research Group at Deakin University. And that is how to fix our federation. Goodness me, I would love a dollar for how many times I have heard that question posed in the uh corridors of power in Victoria. So Carolyn Holbrook uh, starts from the observation that uh, when the centenary of Federation happened about 20 years ago, there was research that found 43% of people were unable to explain what the Federation meant. Yet, she writes, if nearly half the population did not understand their federal system of government before the COVID-19 pandemic, they would be hard-pressed to maintain their ignorance now. She notes the very, very uh, long and difficult problems with Australian Federation, including the imbalance between the power to tax and the power to spend between the Commonwealth and the states. And... Uh, or at least the different levels of those powers. And also mention the many failed, I guess, attempts there have been at different times to try to change the workings of the Federation from the ground up. But she says, uh, and that can lead many people to think, she says, the Federation is stuck, unfit for purpose, but unable to be reformed what is to be done. Before we can prescribe a solution, we need to diagnose the problem. Apathy lies at the heart of our failure to fix the Federation. Australians just don't care enough about the Federation or any aspect of our democratic system for that matter to inform themselves about the details of reform proposals. As we shall see, this is a problem with deep historical roots. So she proceeds to look, I guess, at the history of the first Commonwealth Day and stories about sort of Australia Day, that sort of thing, and the the loss of interest in the Federation that occurred in the early decades of the 20th century. The disappearance of Commonwealth Day, which commemorated the Federation, had wide-reaching consequences that are still with us today. There is, as John Hurst, 
the historian observed a strange gap between the magnitude of Australia's democratic achievement and our lack of regard for it. By failing to commemorate Federation, our political leaders did not place the keystone in the arch of our civic history. We lost the opportunity to develop a strong attachment to our constitution and democratic system of government, the kind of attachment that might prompt us to engage with matters of federation reform. And so she then looks at examples of like uh, the the other successful national commemorations, particularly the transformation of Anzac Day over the last 20 years or so. And so imagines uh, the development of a civic tradition in Australia that would celebrate the Federation. Government must then think imaginatively about how the often technical issues raised by Australian federalism can be refracted through the democratic legend in order to engage and motivate Australians. Reform must start not with bureaucrats and bureaucratic processes, but with the people who give legitimacy to the government and in turn are owed accountability. It must demonstrate how reform will benefit citizens through better services in health, education, aged care and other vital areas. Of course, I would add, it's somewhat hard to work out and to explain without the uh, bureaucrats and bureaucratic processes, how specifically changes to the Federation will lead to better services in health, education, aged care and other vital areas. But that's a a bit of a nitpicky point. And I would say, I mean, I guess Caroline Holbrook's uh, essay shows perhaps some of the difficulty of the perspective of the... Um, book Lessons from History it certainly highlights the value of looking at you know culture and uh, different different uh, aspects of I guess the national imagination and how that leads into politics but by rubbing out the enormous practical difficulties that have affected every attempt to engage in what people like to call federation reform I think Uh, Carolyn Holbrook is tending to rather uh, overlook an enormous amount of history that really ought to be incorporated into the story of Federation reform. And for that, however, she might just need to pay a little bit more attention to the experiences of those uh, bureaucrats Uh, who have had to suffer through decades of failed attempts of federation reform before making her recommendations to fix the federation through a vast great civics class for the whole nation. I hope that's not too unkind, but I guess it bridges to my by my next little section in the podcast to really sort of wrap it up, which is to talk about, I guess, my own experience trying to bridge policy and history through my career and why, I guess, ultimately I found the book Lessons from History, subtitled Leading Historians Tackle Australia's Greatest Challenges, disappointingly lacking in insight and disappointingly lacking in lessons. I fear in the end it was lessons from historians and not lessons from history. Both Bongiorno and uh, Holbrook's essay end up essentially advocating uh, a long series of uh, classes in historical literacy and national self-education from cradle to grave, even in Bongiorno's words. And in the end, this is perhaps more in the interests and more an idea that would appeal 
to teachers of history rather than people who are encountering problems in the world that require a solution now and want to make use of the gra- of make use of history to work through those problems and to act justly and well within uh, the constraints they face and for me so I think there's probably a bit more work to be done by the authors of Lessons from History to truly bridge the gap between policy and history. But I certainly think it can be done. I mean, in my own career, I guess, um, I have many times actually more or less practised historical thinking, historical knowledge, historical writing gone quite deep into the uh, history of an issue, of an institution, and of a problem in order to guide my own action and thinking about it, and my own advice to policymakers about it. Of course, one does not write that up in long notes, but it certainly informs the judgments that one makes about arguments about um, people and advocates and also about the, the kind of solutions that one might propose to certain problems. Governing is as much about uh, sizing up the complex truth of the world as is uh, writing a professionally paid for history. And so I think it's the quality of the nature of the thought, the nature of the uh, information, the nature of the knowledge and the nature of the stories that are drawn upon that inform well-informed judgment on the basis of history, which I think is perhaps what we should be aspiring to in uh, government, in policy and in politics. So, for example... Uh, For many years, I was uh, kind of responsible for alcohol and drug policy. And uh, uh, certainly in relationship to alcohol, I um, did not just deal with immediate issues. I sort of went quite deep into the history of uh, the issue of alcohol in, in Victoria. Uh, where I live and work, back into the 19th century and reading the different debates that were held about the temperance movement, um, understanding the development, the rather complex development of legislation and whatnot around uh, uh, alcohol, realising the powerful presence in uh, I guess progressive social thought throughout the, 19th, throughout the 20th century of a distinctly wowserist uh, element uh, and indeed although people talk about prohibition in in uh, America which happened in the 1920s uh, there were also actually votes in Victoria for prohibition uh, from uh, you know from during World War one and through even until the 1950s um, of course Australia Victoria had very early closing hours and there was a significant transformation of that in the 1980s and throughout my period working in policy and government decision making around alcohol I would actually you know look in some depth at uh, those earlier uh, earlier materials to understand just how the issue had developed and I would meet with people who live through major events of change and try to understand how they tried to shape events as well. And I would even try to understand, after all, the deeper cultural roots of alcohol in uh, and other intoxicating drugs in human cultures is very long and very, very deep. And uh, understanding the real role of alcohol in a culture is rather complex and although I never wrote a long book (laughs) about all of that all that thinking 
absolutely would inform one's responses to proposals to, well, let's solve the problem by taxing it or let's solve the problem by running an advertising campaign or let's ban this, or let's ban that, uh, understanding the, the real complex context, as the authors of Lessons of History might say, um, really shaped the advice on individual day-to-day issues. So I think one of the most important things that can be done to bridge the uh, gulf between historians and policymakers is for historians to perhaps come down from the podium and not deliver lectures to policymakers, not to see themselves as the truth-tellers who are clarifying the muddied vision of these short-term thinkers in policy land, but to uh, appreciate the shared difficulty of making sense of the world around us that we all try to uh, work our way through, to work through all the complications and the chaos and the comedy of human history, and to converse at an equal level with policymakers, realising that there are many not-so-obvious occasions at which, in, in which uh, politicians and policymakers, public servants, consultants even sometimes, and advisers uh, engage in actual, practical, deep, historical thinking in deciding courses of events and action in the great stream of events uh, that one faces when uh, one has a role of responsibility in a government. So that, I think, is perhaps more important than uh, educating our citizens from cradle to grave in historical literacy, whatever the current fashion of historical literacy might be. And that is uh, more important than celebrating particular uh, perspectives uh, on policies or uh, national days, federation even. And in some ways, I think it is uh, a more complex task, which is to bring uh, timely techniques of judgment and historical thought to uh, decision-making, uh, both in, in ordinary life, as we kind of try to make sense of what's happening in the world around us and how we should act. Uh, after all, you know, it's a, it's a complicated time right now. Or or in a policy context in terms of making decisions, whether it be big decisions of statecraft or those sort of minor petty bureaucratic decisions that Carolyn Holbrook refers to that shape the course of better services for health, education, aged care and uh, the justice system. Uh, uh, in our states. There is a book by uh, an American, Richard Neustadt, called, and Ernest May, called Thinking in Time, The Uses of History for Decision Makers, which really developed as a kind of a course that they uh, delivered at one of the American universities, which tried to sort of develop techniques for uh, applying history to the time-pressured decision-making in, in politics in, and in government. And particularly, I guess, in this uh, book, many of the examples really relate to foreign policy, I guess, uh, constant preoccupation of the American imperial state. And it, this book by Neustadt, I think provides perhaps a better way of thinking about how to bridge, uh, how to bridge the worlds of history and policy, because um, they are actually not that far away. 
and in some ways it is very much a story about becoming aware of the stories we tell ourselves and how they can distort our perception of current day events. In some ways it's a a broader version of uh, what Frank Bongiorno does in looking at how the story of Paul Kelly's account of the Australian settlement perhaps justified but then led people to distort the understanding of the real history of Australia's economic and, and political development. Useful perhaps for a time but then in a different context becoming less useful. So Newstat very much asks people to check the kind of stories they use about the past and to enrich the inventory of stories that they bring to their understanding of the past to not just be able to compare America with the Roman Empire but to be able to compare it with the Spanish Empire or the British Empire or the Russian Empire or any of another hundred kinds of empires that provide different lessons about institutional change, about the how events might unfold, about what the situation that we are in really is and what the choices before us are. His uh, big advice is for people to check, to ask oh, not what is the problem what is the story and this I think is something uh, this idea of understanding how uh, or, or being able to what he describes as think in time to exercise judgment about how events will unfold between competing actors in a flow of time uh, and a, a a fog a fog of uncertainty about the future, and I'm actually I think going to uh, have a little bit of a look at this the practical elements of this uh, book by Richard Dustat because it's a terribly useful book I think in many ways I think probably a long neglected book now. Uh, very much doubt if any of the history departments of Australian universities would care to run a course at the moment on the uh, practical use of historical thinking in decision making in this way but I think it would be a terribly valuable thing because that perspective helps us experience the world and observe it clearly and not just get caught up as uh, some sort of activist historian narrator so that we can understand the times that we're in it helps us shake off false and unhelpful stories and it allows us to make our own choices and I think we can see this too in some of the debates um, that have been ventilated in the burning archive about uh, what's going on in the Russia-Ukraine war or how Australia should respond to China and foreign policy. There are big stories about history, that pe- big comparisons or models about history that people are bringing to those, those questions that may not be totally right or that may not be totally helpful. And but by... A, a you know lay judgment about the differences and similarities between some of these events might help us clarify our understanding of our situation and how we go about things in that situation. So uh, the next episode of the podcast is going to be looking at this book, James Newstat thinking in time and it will be perhaps a slightly different episode because I think it will have a bit more of a practical focus rather than just me crapping on about things Uh, I'll sort of talk through his various methods and techniques and then I think I might start to apply the very same uh, model if you like 
to our understanding of Russian history. And I'm going to look at the black legend of Russian history. So that will be the next episode after that. So in wrapping up, let me thank the editors of Lessons from History, uh, Carolyn Holbrook, David uh, Lowe and Lyndon McGarity and also a special thanks to Frank Bongiorno and James Walter for appearing vicariously on the Burning Archive uh, podcast. Thanks very much for your contributions to the public discussion. It is wonderful to see history openly and widely discussed. I just do feel that we could have done a better job of it and I don't think Australia is going to quite get the a better relationship going between historians and government officials until we look for more of the connecting points in thinking and judgment between policy makers, policy implementers and historians. And we also broaden our concept of historians to include professional historians, credentialed historians, clearly, but also many of the uh, people who practice uh, making sense of the past as uh, a sense-making activity, rather like myself in my writing and on this podcast. So... Anyhow, that's a bit of a sort of rambly end to the show. I hope you've enjoyed this uh, episode of the Burning Archive podcast. Do like uh, the show. Leave me a five-star review, uh, rating and review on Apple iTunes. Share the podcast with your friends and people you think might like it. And I will be over the next months giving uh, some more information for, on some of the future developments of the Burning Archive um, so do stay tuned for those and uh, in the meantime remember what thou lovest well will not be reft from thee bye now bye